Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 628. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Now, before I kind of come clean and apologise... I'll just tell you who's coming up today's show. First up, the main fiction is The Midwives by Jude Reed. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. There we go. That's all coming up today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So, right, bit of humble pie there. Picards, it, it's a lot better. <laughs> it certainly picked up. It, mind you, it's took... I don't know how long they're going to kind of run with this show or series or anything like that, but it's took to episode six for me to kind of really get interested in it. And the first one kicked off great, and then it just seemed to kind of plod along. I'm not going to give out any spoilers, so don't worry about that. It just seemed to plod along, but it's only with episode six that I thought, right, here we go, and I wanted to watch episode 7 straight away. Now, I haven't done that. What I have done is pause, pause, I'll come back to it, I'll come back to it. And I was deeply disappointed with it. But it, for this 6 and 7, we're all right. We're going in the right direction. Things are looking up. Yes, there we go. That's enough, that's enough. We'll get into the main fiction of this show. Like I say, it is The Midwives by Jude Reed. This story first appeared in science fiction fantasy world anthology Dying Worlds. Jude Reed lives in Glasgow, Scotland and writes in, her, in the narrow gaps between work wrangling her kids and trying to wear out a border collie. You'll never, never do that. When she's not writing, she's studying for black belt in Taekwondo, running from zombies, climbing inadvertently large mountains, or acting in the audio drama Tales from the Lithian Society. She takes her coffee with oat milk. Now, this story is narrated by Matt Dovey. Matt Dovey is a very tall and very English and most likely drinking a cup of tea right now. He has his scar on an arm that he can't remember getting, but a terrible darkness floods his mind when he considers it. He now lives in a quiet market town in rural England with his wife and three children. And despite being a writer, he still hasn't found the right words to properly express the delight and joy he finds in this wonderful arrangement. His surname rhymes with Dobie, but any other similarities to the dwarf are purely coincidental. 
He has a golden pen winner for the Writers of the Future, Volume 32, which was in 2016 and was shortlisted for the James White Award in 2016 as well and has fiction out and forthcoming all over the place. And you can kind of find it with mattdovey.com or follow him on Facebook and Twitter. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Midwives, written by Jude Reed, narrated by Matt Dovey. We found the dead god on the hillside. He was lying head down on a rocky slope, the pale skull cracks down the middle, glassy eyes staring up at the heavy red sky. Rust-coloured scars in the scree marked the line of its descent to the dusty crater where it had landed. Even from a distance we could tell it was enormous, tall enough to tower over a grown adult if it stood up, monstrous compared to the three of us. What do we do? Cole asked, his voice reedy, shaking with panic. What if it's dead? What if it's not dead? Una said, already scrambling down the rocks towards it. Cole looked up at me with wide eyes. What are you going to do? I don't know. Just wait there, Una shouted, an edge of irritation creeping into her voice. Keeping up with my sister was always a struggle. She was the best climber of any of us, goat sure and graceful, up every day before first dark to scale the crags, wring out the dewcloths and scavenge for eggs. After a few moments of effortless traversing, she dropped to the ground beside the monstrous body. Come on then, she called back, without bothering to turn her head. Cole's hand tightened on my arm. You can't, he said. What if it's poison air down there? What if that's what happened to it? I shrugged him off. In all honesty, I was more afraid of Una than poison air. I'd never been its victim, but I'd seen its effects when a luckless goat had wandered off and succumbed, or the occasional water gatherer had been brought back from the low ground drowsy and twitching. We knew to stay away from craters, crollies and stagnant water, and to avoid staying too long on the flatlands, but it was still an ever-present threat, invisible, waiting and deadly. But Una's power to injure with words and blows I knew first hand. At thirteen, she was the oldest of the three of us, our leader, mentor and protector. She was the one who ensured our safety in Tarmigan, who made sure we had our share of food and water and a cool enough space to sleep. But that protection came at the price of obedience and it was one we had learned to pay in full. The gods don't breathe, stupid, I said, and I began an unsteady scramble down the scree. Una turned at my noisy approach, acknowledging my presence with a jerk of her head. You took your time, she said, grudgingly moving to allow me access to the corpse sprawled on the ground. I muttered an apology. She ignored it. Lift the head, she said. Lift it? She looked at me like I was stupid and nodded. Yes, lift it. Why? Just do it, she rolled her eyes. The god's head felt smooth and cool under my hands. I was surprised by its lightness as I lifted it, holding the pale sphere a few inches from the ground. Una ran her fingers over the back of its skull, probing, and brought them away covered in a pungent dark fluid. Is it blood? I whispered. The god's huge dark eyes stared up at the clouded red sky. Its face was a white death mask, its robe spread around it like vast wings. I don't know. Maybe. Not the same as our blood if it is. Why is it here? I asked. Is it for the tithe? Una shook her head, eyes still fixed on the body. Ah, the tithe isn't due for another year. They're never early. She wiped her hand down her tunic, leaving a dark, oily smear. Oh, what do we do? I need you to help me. I stared. Una never asked for help, and when it came to climbing at least, she never needed any. She hissed at me, 
a short frustrated burst. We need to carry it. Carry was the wrong word for what we did. The pair of us struggling under its unwieldy bulk, we half lifted, half dragged the body up the slope to where Cor was waiting. My hands were slick by the time we reached him, the heat of the night oppressive and the air too moist for sweat to evaporate from our skin. Una offered me a sip of water, but pulled the flask away before I could fill my mouth completely. It was late spring, and the heat was nothing to what it would be in a month or two, but the cloud was low and thick, heat stroke a growing danger the further down the mountainside you went. But dew cross and a few dribbling streams aside, water and the survival it represented were best found in the valley. We left the empty water carriers where we'd first seen the body, Una pushing our protests aside with empty promises to return for them later. The journey back to Tarmigan took over an hour, the three of us exhausted by the time the huts and canopies are in sight, but Cole still found the energy to take off at a flat-out sprint, headed straight for the Godspeaker's hut. Goats and chickens scattered around him, all eyes on him as the hides covering the hut's entrance were pulled to one side, and the Godspeaker walked out. She was old, the oldest person any of us had ever seen, older even than Mam's sister, who'd been an old woman when she died last year at thirty-three. The Godspeaker's exact age was a mystery, but she talked of remembering the last great rains, and those had been half a century ago, when the tribe still lived in the old settlement further down the hill. The white braid of her hair coiled around her head like a crown, and she wore a long robe over the same short tunic as the rest of us. I watched her gaze turn from the anxiously fluttering call to us, and then to the dead god. It was only for a moment, but I saw an expression cross her face that was shockingly unfamiliar there. The god-speaker was afraid. We found this, Una said, her clear voice carrying across the settlement, on the northern face. The godspeaker stepped forward. Bring it here, she said, and pulled back the hides that covered her doorway. A few of the tribe moved to help us, but she waved them away, calling us forward by name. Into my hut, she said. We laid the god down on one of the two narrow beds in the hut. It smelled of goat and earth and the sharp-smelling ointment that the godspeaker used on ritual occasions. Half the tribe had been born in here, and I remembered more than one night spent under this roof, dreams made vivid by fever and flavoured with the taste of her potions. The godspeaker was the voice of the gods, the grandmother of the tribe, a constant, reassuring presence that meant safety, belonging and home. When I looked up at her, her face was grey, and her mouth was drawn into a thin, hard line. Where did you find this? she asked, voice soft and controlled. Una answered for us. On the north side of the ridge. Godspeaker ran a hand over the god's skull, eyes closed, face averted. Thank you for bringing this to me. What does it mean? Cole asked into the silence that followed. How can it be dead? I asked. Una laughed a dull, ugly sound. <laughs> Same way anything can be dead. The godspeaker's eyes snapped open. Go, she said. Cole and I began to scurry for the door, but Una lingered. What are you going to do? she asked. Commune with the gods. Observe the rites. The godspeaker turned her back. For a moment I thought Una would resist, but in the end she submitted to Cole's insistent tugging and we left the hut together. Midnight had brought a light breeze, enough to lift a little sweat from our skin, and the sensation was bliss. The tribe were clustering around the godspeaker's hut, though the respect they had for her ran too deep for any of them to enter. Una brushed their questions aside with a shake of her head, and we followed her to the edge of the collie and sat a little distance from the torchlight's glow. I will need to bring extra tomorrow, I said. Water, I mean. 
Una shrugged the shoulder. If you like, we've enough for ourselves in the hut. And for a few days, yes. What about the others? They can get their own. Una was like that these days. She was turning from a child to an adult, body and mind both, and the change was making her cruel. Before long, the time would come for her to choose and marry, and I could already see the older boys preening when they thought she was watching. After that, it would be babies, like every other woman in Tarmigan, one every two years. One to live, one to die, one for the tithe, then all to do again, as the old saying went. If it wasn't coming for the tithe, I asked, as we sat in silence, legs dangling into the dark void, why was it here? Instead of answering, Una got to her feet. Come on! She said, not you, Cole, you wait here. It was clear she expected me to follow her, and taking my obedience for granted, swung herself easily down onto the rock face and began to traverse it round to the far side of the plateau. The darkness didn't slow her one bit. I struggled to keep up, more than once placing my foot on a loose stone and sending it skittling down the precipice. If I fell, death would be certain, but I tried not to dwell on that, focusing instead on feeling for hand and foothold that would bear my weight. I almost overshot her in the end, so focused on surviving the scramble that I forgot to pay attention to where she was going. She had led us around the rock face that was the northern border to the settlement, behind the huts and the animal pens, far from Tarmigan's lights, and waited on the ledge while I scrambled up beside her. What are we doing? I mouthed. Follow me. Watch. The crowd of tribespeople had dispersed a little from the Godspeaker's door, though there was still a continual low murmur from those that remained. The half of the tribe that had seen us return were wasting no time in updating the others, and their noise was enough to cover our approach as we crawled, flat-bellied in the dust, to the back door of the Godspeaker's hut, and edged our way under the hides that covered it. It was brightly lit inside, not with the smoky yellow glow of tallow candles, but the brilliant white of the glowstones that the Godspeaker alone could command. They cast a cold, clear light that suffused every corner of the hut, blinding in its radiance where it touched the dead god's face. The Godspeaker was kneeling by the body, head bowed, hands folded in her lap. Her crown of hair had come loose, hanging like a white rope down her back, and I could see from her face that she had been crying. Though it seemed shocking at first, when I thought about it, it seemed obvious she should be grieving. Maybe she alone had known the gods were mortal, or perhaps she was as surprised as the rest of us. She put her hand tenderly to the god's chest, smoothing the folds of its white robe like a mother calming a child. Then she looked from one entrance of her hut to the other. I thought for one awful moment she had noticed us, but it seemed the white light inside was blinding her to the darkness beyond. With absolute familiarity, she wrapped her fingers around the god's neck, just where it met the anger of the jaw, and her movement was rewarded with a soft hiss. Something shifted under her fingertips, and she pushed the god's head upwards, and as I watched, it came away in her hands. I shoved both my fists into my mouth to stifle my gasp, the godspeaker let out a long, shuddering sigh and laid the head carefully on the ground beside the body. A quick glance at Una showed that even she couldn't keep the wonder from her face. What I had taken for the god's head was a sort of helmet, a huge empty dome, cracked at the back like a shattered egg. The god's true face had hidden beneath it, and it was human, old like the godspeaker's, but slack and expressionless in death. Godspeaker's hands were shaking as she anointed them and ran them over the back of the dead god's head. Motion reminded me of Una when first we had found it out on the ridge, but rather than a cursory examination, the Godspeaker's hands lingered there, probing and exploring. Her mouth twisted with grief and revulsion, then she brought her bloody hands to cover her face. 
She sat there in silence. I watched her shoulders shake with racking, bone-deep sobs until I couldn't bear it any longer. Not daring to look at Una, I scurried across the packed earth of the hut's floor, put my arms around the godspeaker's shoulders and pressed my face into her, knowing even then that it was poor comfort for all I had to give. She started and drew away, clearly having been completely unaware of my presence. When I looked up, Una was standing in the doorway, her face white with betrayal, all attempt at concealment abandoned. The godspeaker wore an expression of guilt that mirrored my own. At last, the old woman let out a soft sigh and wiped the blood and tears from her face. "'Come in, Una,' she said. She put her arm around me and squeezed me once and gently steered me to a place on the floor beside her. The dead god's face was serene, a wooden carving, the lines of age that marked it like well-polished grain. "'Why did you do it?' the godspeaker asked. Her voice was gentle, but Una flinched. The godspeaker raised a hand, but the gesture was conciliatory, not admonishing. It's all right, Una. I'm not angry. But I need to understand. Una took a half step into the room. How did you know? I didn't, not for sure. The godspeaker's smile was sorrowful. But who would have had the courage but you? And she finally answered. My sister's eyes were on her feet. Every tithe they take more and leave fewer of us. She bit at her lower lip, her face uncertain in a way I hadn't seen for years. I saw it, coming to take what was ours. It was early, too early, too greedy. But it didn't see me, hadn't noticed the uneven ground it was standing on. And I thought, one could push, and if it fell, then I'd know. Her eyes were closed now. I could imagine what she was seeing. The white arms waving as the god stumbled, rolled billowing around it as it fell. The sharp crack of the helmet, the rush of scree down the slope, the silence that followed. My sister was shaking. It fell! Were your brother and sister with you? Did they see? I shook my head along with Una. No, she said. I took them back later. I thought, if we found it together, as though it had been an accident, if we took it back, if the tribe knew that gods could die, then what? Una raised her head, glaring as she met the godspeaker's eyes. The words tumbled out of her in a furious rush, hard-edged and bitter. Then maybe they'd stop obeying. Maybe they'd think for themselves, not just do everything you say, because the gods told you. And they're not gods, are they? She pointed a finger at the corpse. Just humans, just like us. What will you do now, Una? Tell the tribe? Bring them in to see? Una's voice was defiant. Why shouldn't I? Maybe you should. I won't stop you, if that's what you choose. But before you do, I want to ask you to give me a few minutes, to let me explain, to both of you. The godspeaker reached out and briefly squeezed my hand. I owe you that. Una folded her arms, and the godspeaker took that as assent. You're right. We're not gods, she said, watching my sister carefully. We're human, just like the tribes. We're descended from the same people, the last to live in the age of technology. And when that was coming to an end, those people realised that Earth was dying and that the only hope for humanity lay on other worlds, on planets capable of sustaining us, if only they could be reached in time. So they made an impossible decision. To send the best of them, the scientists, the engineers, the historians, the philosophers, the artists, into space, to the dark edges of the solar system, where they could carry on the search for humanity's new home. 
She lifted the dead god's hand and released the wrist joint with the same movement she had used to remove the helmet. There was a stiff, cold hand under the glove and she twined her fingers between the corpses, holding it as she spoke. They were young, the ones who went, the most brilliant, the chosen children of Earth. Their parents placed the future of the species in their hands and let them go, knowing they'd never see them again. And those scions of Earth made their home out in the asteroid belt, beyond the reach of the sun's anger. They built space stations and refineries, they made probes to explore the far reaches of the universe, and in the end they found what they were looking for, planets that might, just might, keep humanity alive. They began to construct a ship to carry them on the decades-long journey through space. It became the work of generations, mining the asteroid belt, building space docks and reactors, until, at last, the Ark itself took shape. And when it was almost complete, they returned to Earth. We returned, to see what relics of our history we could find to take with us. But what we found was something no one expected. Living humans. Debased and primitive, true, their histories lost, but still humans, still surviving. They had migrated towards the poles and to the high ground, clustering around the dwindling pools of water. But they were alive, long after they should have been gone. You lied to us, Una said flatly. You kept our secret. We tried to tell you. Truly, we tried. The Godspeaker's voice took on a pleading air, begging us to understand. Over and over we tried to reason with the tribes, and every time we were met with hostility. To them, nothing we said could be true. No matter what evidence we presented, they dismissed it as trickery and deception. When we persisted, they turned to violence. It seemed life on a dying world had made them cruel, and we knew that to force them onto the Ark ship would have meant death for them and for us all. And then we realised these primitive, tenacious tribes were the solution to our problem. If there was some way we could convince these savages to do what their ancestors had done so many generations ago to give up their children, the best of them, to trust their future to the stars. Then we could build more ships and send them to many worlds, scattering humanity like dandelion seeds on the wind in search of fertile soil. We sent our people to live among you, to teach you, to guide you. We gave you the benefits of our knowledge, our medicine, even a little of our technology, careful always to keep our nature concealed. And once every seven years, we took a tithe of children to live among the gods. She shuddered. We made it your religion. To keep us docile? Yes. The godspeaker nodded with agreement and resignation. She folded the dead man's hand across his chest and covered it with a fold of his robe. To keep you docile. And just a little. To give you hope. Farmers and butchers, Una said, bitterness seeping from her voice. You breathe us when we're young and colours when we get too old to be of any use to you. The godspeaker didn't look at her. If we wronged humans, it was for the sake of humanity. There was a clamour from outside the hut, a sudden hubbub of voices all speaking excitedly at once. Una's head jerked towards the doorway. The godspeaker turned slowly in the same direction, her expression thoughtful. They're coming, she said. Who? I asked. The rest of us, coming to take the final tithe for the last ship. Una took a step towards the doorway. I'll tell the tribe, I'll tell them it's lies, that there are no gods, and if I show them this, they'll believe me, or fight you. I stood, hesitating between my sister and the godspeaker. Una, wait! I won't stop you, the old woman said gently. The old woman said gently. But what will it achieve? 
Fight, and some of your people will die. Some of mine too, I'm sure. You've proven you're more than capable. And you'll be left alone to live out your last days on the dying earth. Or let the lie persist for one more day and let every child of the tribe come peacefully with us into the stars. You, your sister, your brother, and your own children in time. No more tithes, no more partings. How can we trust you? Una said, after everything you've told us. You can't. But I trust you. The godspeaker smiled then, a slow, sad expression that stopped short of her eyes. Birth is difficult, she said, and dangerous, and sometimes hard choices have to be made. But without it, there's no future for anyone. We were never farmers, never butchers. We were midwives. When we pulled back the hides over the doorway, the horizon was glowing red. The last stars were burning in the giddy depth of the sky, and a long, slow procession of lights was approaching up the winding mountain paths. The gods were coming for the final time. And there you go, Jude. Jude, thank you so much. That's an honour to have you on. That's lovely. Excellent. And Matt, always a pleasure. Never a chore. There you go. So... Ames lass, Amy, Amy H. Sturgis. Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history, and I'm excited about what I'd like to discuss with you today. But before I get started, one quick announcement. You may recall that I recommended a book to you last November. That was episode 612. The book was Monster, She Wrote. And it detailed many of the women pioneers of speculative fiction. And I wanted to let you know that the co-authors of that book, Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson, have now started a podcast based on that book. It's called The Monster She Wrote Podcast. And it's so new that the second episode just came out, and it's great listening. If you are interested in genre fiction, in the history of speculative fiction, and women authors, women poets, women filmmakers, uh, women who have been involved in the creation of the genre and its evolution as we know it, you won't want to miss it. So I just wanted to recommend the Monster She Wrote podcast. Good listening there. All right, and so now I'd like to talk, first of all, about a work whose anniversary I missed last year, but I also want to do something I haven't done in a while, and that is sort of connect the dots. So I'm going to start in the middle this time, and then I'm going to look forward and look backward, and then connect some dots all together. 2019 marked the 100th anniversary of an important work of pulp fiction, and that work is The Curse of Capistrano by Johnston McCulley. It's a novel, but it was serialized in five parts between the 9th of August and the 6th of September in 1919 in the pulp magazine All Story Weekly. Originally, it was meant to be a standalone tale, but in fact, it became so popular that, well, it was the beginning of a very, very long storytelling tradition. Why? Because the Curse of Capistrano introduced a character known as Zorro. Zorro was a masked 
vigilante hero who stood up for the little guy and fought the power. He was the secret identity of Don Diego de la Vega, who lived during the time of Spanish California. So we're talking 1769 to 1821. He fought against corrupt officials and the tyrannical people in power and other villains who preyed on the common people and the indigenous peoples of California. He had a bounty on his head who was a wanted outlaw, but he was much too smart to be caught by the bumbling officials. And by day, he lived as a kind of air-headed aristocratic playboy, the son of the wealthiest man in California. But when he donned his mask and he took up the many weapons with which he was expert, including his rapier sword, which he would then carve uh, a Z with to note that Zorro had been there, well, he was an unstoppable champion of justice. I first was introduced to Zorro through reruns of the Disney television series, which starred Guy Williams, who was also the father in the original Lost in Space. The original television series ran from 1957 to 1959, 78 episodes, and then it became several hour-long follow-up films that were shown in the Walt Disney Anthology television series in 1960 and 61. But there was a long, long history before Guy Williams became Zorro. And interestingly enough, Zorro was a multimedia kind of character almost from the beginning. So the first novel comes out in 1919, and the actor Douglas Fairbanks reads it, loves it, and says this needs to be adapted for film. And so it became the first film adapted for United Artists, which was the company that Fairbanks formed with his wife, Mary Pickford, and Charlie Chaplin and D.W. Griffith. In fact, Douglas Fairbanks was the one who adapted the novel to a screenplay under the pen name Elton Thomas with his co-adapter Eugene Miller, and then he cast himself. So Douglas Fairbanks became the first Zorro, and The Curse of Capistrano was renamed The Mark of Zorro in 1920. That film was so successful, this silent adventure, swashbuckler romance, that the original creator of Zorro, Johnston McCulley, was convinced to write many, many more Zorro stories. His next story was published in 1922, and he consistently published, particularly throughout the 40s and 50s. His last story was published after his death in 59. Disney took up the mantle after and was publishing works in the late 50s and after that, there have been works published up through uh, 2018, Peter David, Zorro and the Little Devil. There have been theatrical films, so many, over the years from 1920s, The Mark of Zorro, through The Legend of Zorro in 2005. That was with Antonio Banderas as Zorro. That was the sequel to his first Zorro film. 
There were American film serials, perhaps most notably Ghost of Zorro in 1949, starring Clayton Moore, who is more famous as the Lone Ranger. There have been a series of Mexican films, of European films, even a film from India based on Zorro and his exploits. There have been U.S. animated series. There have been Japanese anime series. And in fact, according to a report from Deadline in November 2019, there is currently a new live-action television series in development for CBS that would follow a character named Z, who is a young woman who is a descendant of the Zorro bloodline, as she fulfills her duty to, quote, protect the defenseless in her community, end quote. So the gist here, Zorro has had traction as a story in multimedia for a very respectable time, a hundred years now and counting. Now, I'd like to point out that one of the gifts that Zorro continues to give us is something that Zorro helped to inspire. And here, because he says it so very well, I would like to quote from a piece from Escapist magazine by Kenneth Lowe. And here's what he says. Quote, across five weeks in 1919, the pulp magazine All Story published an adventure novel by Johnston McCulley called The Curse of Capistrano, and then probably quickly pivoted to whatever came next as they prepared to put out their next 300 pages of weekly fiction. You may never have read that story, but you know the main character. He's a fop who luxuriates in wealth and irresponsibility by day, but by night dons a black mask and strikes terror into the hearts of those who prey upon those less fortunate. His symbol is known throughout the land. He struggles with the duality of his existence. He's forced to endure disdain and disappointment from his loved ones because their safety demands that he hide his true self from them. In carrying out justice from the shadows, he shames the hapless and corrupt people who purport to maintain order by the light of day. They call him by the name of a beast because his capabilities seem beyond human. You get the picture. The pulp character Zorro, who celebrates his centennial this year, the essay is from 2019, and is a confirmed influence on Batman, end quote. That quote is from the essay, The Fox and the Batman, How Zorro Shaped a Century of Heroes. And again, that's from Escapist Magazine. It's worth pointing out that it was such common knowledge that Bob Kane, the co-creator of Batman, was influenced by Zorro to create Batman, that it has become kind of canonized in DC texts that Zorro was, in fact, literally an influence on the real Batman. In other words, we find that in the DC Comics continuity, it's established that the film that eight-year-old Bruce Wayne saw with his parents, Thomas and Martha, at the movie theater only minutes before they were then murdered in cold blood right before his eyes, was the film The Mark of Zorro. 
Now, different Batman texts will claim it's different versions. So, for example, The Dark Knight Returns claims it was the Tyrone Power version, the 1940 version of The Mark of Zorro. There's a story by Alan Grant that says that it's the 1920 Douglas Fairbanks original. In Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, the family is seen leaving a screening of the 1940s The Mark of Zorro. In the animated series Justice League Unlimited, it's clear that they're attending The Mark of Zorro, but it doesn't say which version it is. The Mark of Zorro is shown in the recent series Gotham, the television series that ran from 2014 to 2019. That version is clearly the Douglas Fairbanks 1920 film, The Mark of Zorro. And again, in 2019's film Joker, the marquee above the theater when young Bruce and his parents exit shows the 1981 film Zorro the Gay Blade. So, again, Zorro over and over again being acknowledged clearly in-universe as part of the origin of Batman, even as in our universe, Zorro was an inspiration for the creation of Batman. But where did Zorro come from? There's pretty clear connections that we can draw to the classic novel the Scarlet Pimpernel. You have Sir Percival Blakeney there, who is the fop by day and by night, uh, the spirited hero, the Scarlet Pimpernel. But that doesn't fully explain why you have Zorro as this sword-wielding Latino character who hails from Mexico and was educated in Spain. Well, one of the works that deeply influenced the creator of Zorro was a very popular novel known as The Life and Adventures of Joaquin Murrieta, the Celebrated California Bandit. And it was by the first great Cherokee, in fact, the first great indigenous American novelist, John Rollin Ridge. Ridge is a fascinating character whose life is caught up in the tragedy of the Cherokee Trail of Tears. I've written about his family quite a bit in the work that I've written on the Trail of Tears, and his biography is definitely a work that I recommend. It's called John Rollin Ridge, His Life and Works by James W. Perrins. Uh, it's published by the University of Nebraska Press. And in that work, John Rollin Ridge is described as a cross between Lord Byron, the romantic poet who made things happen, and Joaquin Murrieta, the legendary bandit he would immortalize. John Rollin Ridge was a controversial, celebrated, and self-cast exile. His extremely popular novel about Joaquin Murrieta came out in 1854. Murrieta was a real person. Um, he lived from 1829 to 1853. He's been called the Robin Hood of the West or the Robin Hood of El Dorado. He was 
kind of one of those figures whose myth and reality are difficult to kind of untangle. Uh, he certainly did exist, uh, but his legend sort of outpaced his life even while he was still living. There's very little evidence about the historical Joaquin. But in the hands of John Rollin Ridge, novelist, well, he becomes a great avenging figure for justice. A Mexican miner who turned to banditry to right the wrongs that were done to him and others like him. Not only is The Life and Adventures of Joaquin Murrieta still in print, it's gotten the full Penguin Classics treatment. In fact, the newest edition has a foreword by Diana Gabaldon, the number one New York Times bestselling author of the Outlander series. And here's the way that the book is described. The first novel to feature a Mexican-American hero, an adventure tale about Mexicans rising up against U.S. rule in California based on the real-life bandit who inspired the creation of Zorro, the Lone Ranger, and Batman. And so, all of this is to say, first of all, happy 100th anniversary just passed to the character of Zorro, but also because history is so cool to connect the dots between the first great native novelist, Cherokee John Rollin Ridge, and his The Life and Adventures of Joaquin Murrieta, to Zorro, and through the pulp hero of Zorro, to our modern caped crusader, Batman. So, I hope you've enjoyed playing Connect the Dots, and I look forward to joining you again very soon when we talk about something completely different, when we take another look back into genre history. Thank you. Hear me? Oh, a big hug, lass, big hug. Hope you're doing well. I'm thinking about you quite a lot, lass, quite a lot. So that is Starship Sova's show. Oh, I've got something to tell you as well. Show 228. It's at 200, 628. Now, I don't know if I mentioned it or not. I'm, I'm sure I must have done. My son Reed wants to be an aerospace engineer. He's in sixth form at the moment, the final years, and he's just about to kind of take his kind of, I guess, the, the big exams, and he's took all the kind of physics, maths, and chem, and all them, just, just way above me. But he got the chance, now get this, he got the chance to go to Russia, would you believe, and there was like a course running, and uh, we kind of signed Reed up, and he flew there by himself, I mean, he's like, he's never been away by himself before, he flew to Russia, had to fly to Amsterdam, then on to Russia, Moscow, meet someone, take them to a hotel, and then there was like a group of them, I think about 10, for ISIS, I think it's called. Now, they got, like, they run a course where it's, it's an astro, to, to become, I'll get the insight into be a, what, what it takes to be an astronaut. And wasn't it held for the five days he was there in Star City, in, you know, this is where Yuri Gagarin kind of took off from this is where the, the hallowed ground of all soviet space missions this is like the training camp boot camp and he had a wonderful time honestly i was thinking he's going to be you know homesick and everything and just not digging it but he just loved it and it was only because there was 
the the astronaut that was taking it for the, the, the five days was called Steve Swanson and took the read. And I'm so proud of reading. I'm just big thank you to Steve Swanson. If he ever listens to this show, it was just fantastic. He like looked after me son and it was just amazing. And Reed's come back buzzing, absolutely buzzing with it. You know, and, and I honestly, I was just like, you could have knocked me over a feather because I was thinking, did you have a good time, Reed? Did you, could you, are you glad to get back? Dad, I could have stayed. I could have stayed longer. Another week, easy. <laughs> and you hear all the tales we've seen. It's like it was like military Russian military food, military beds they're sleeping on, and everything. You know what I mean? It's just a bizarre scenario that he got himself into, and it was just he loved it, absolutely loved it. And they were doing all like docking simulations on the Soyuz and everything. He's just you know just absolutely loved it. So there we go. My son's now back. Read, take the dogs. How are you? Pick up that dog shade up. You know what I mean? He's back to the kind of real world there. So, anyway, hope you have a good time. Look after yourselves. Take good care. Goodbye from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets, I'm pointing them to the moon. But the work is going slowly. It won't get to you anytime soon. Can you? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I want to talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here. And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home With nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out